was originally going to wait until it stopped raining to record this episode, but I actually feel it adds a certain ambiance, since we are talking about Supernatural, and it is a dark and stormy afternoon. In one sentence, this is X-Files meets Route 66. Two brothers cruising the dusty back roads in their trusty 64 Mustang, battling the things that go bump in the night. These are the first two sentences of Eric Kripke's Pitch of Supernatural, dated August 30, 2004. Based on iconic media such as Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, On the Road, The Odyssey, and The Matrix, Kripke considers Supernatural to be Star Wars in Truck Stop America. He went through over two dozen rewrites of the pilot to get to what we know today. Grimy, gritty, horror-filled hero's journey of the lives of two extremely damaged individuals who don't really like each other personally or have anything in common, but love each other to death. They save people. They hunt monsters. That's the family business. The original pitch for the pilot had Dean informing Sam that supernatural creatures are real and they killed their mum. Sam spent his whole 21 year long life believing that their father killed their mother and now their father's body has been found Dean as the lead suspect in the murder. Sam has to make the choice to run back to their aunt and uncle's house in LA where he can spend the summer interning at a law firm before he starts Stanford or help Dean fight monsters and you know which one he chooses. In the pilot that aired, Sam knows about the supernatural. He and Dean grow up trained as warriors by their father John to hunt supernatural creatures, kill evil, and save people. The plot goes as thus. Sam, a six-month-old baby, is in his crib when an unknown man appears. Mary, Sam and Dean's mother, walks in. John, their father, comes in as well to see what's wrong and finds Mary pinned to the ceiling with a slash across her womb. The house catches on fire. Dean, as a four-year-old, takes Sam out of the house, and John follows soon after. Cut to 22 years later, Sam is a college student at Stanford with a beautiful girlfriend, Jess, whose resemblance to his mother is (laughs) uncanny. He reveals that he's got an interview on Monday with the law school at Stanford. His idyllic, apple pie, safe life is interrupted by the appearance of Dean, who asks Sam to accompany him in finding their dad. That's the premise of the first season, Find Dad. Sam makes a deal with Dean that he'll help on this one last case before he embarks on his life as a lawyer-to-be. Dean takes the deal, but when they realise that John left the case unfinished and skipped town, it's up to them to follow in John's footsteps and pick up hunting again, as a family. However, Sam reiterates that he needs to be back at Stanford for his meeting that will determine his future, and Dean drops him back. But of course, this is not meant to be. When he finds Jess pinned to the roof of their bedroom, her womb slashed open and the apartment starts to burn down, Sam is forced into repeating the history of intergenerational trauma that traps them in the hunting life. The trauma their father inflicted on them is a Promethean circle that leaves no one unscathed. John is a hard man. While it's evident in the first scene that he loves his boys, his grief, coupled with his military history, twists him into a drill sergeant who works his kids to the bone, all in the name of the family business. He often puts his own needs above that of his kids, especially Dean, who often acts as the go-between Sam and John. From the very beginning, Sam is positioned as John's mirror, pulled back into the hunting life when his girlfriend dies just like his mother. Both John and Sam have their lives upended by the death of their significant other, except for Sam he has Dean, and John has no one. Bringing his sons into the life meant leaning on them when he couldn't handle his grief and the exhaustion of the job himself, but this is a caustic dynamic. 
Your children are not your partners. Dean should not have gone on a hunt by himself at 17 to later arrest the ghosts of two closeted nuns when he was closeted himself. John should not have put the burden on Dean to look after his brother while John was away on hunts because Dean was a child. It robbed Dean of his childhood, forced him to grow up too quickly, and left him with a saviour complex and control issues that he carries into the last season of the show. The abuse Sam and Dean suffer at the hands of their father is something that permeates the entire show, all while the characters apologise for him and little commentary is made on how badly he messed them up. In the pilot, we don't see him in the present, only in 1983, and then sporadically throughout the rest of the show, notably in seasons 1, 2, 4, and 5, as well as in the show's 300th episode, Lebanon. He is a ghost that controls the fate of these two men, as he directs them where to hunt, while at the same time refusing to even show his face in times of dire need. In the episode Faith, Dean is dying and John doesn't make a reappearance. In the episode Home, Dean calls John scared and crying and begs him to come back to their childhood home of Lawrence, Kansas. Again, John doesn't show up for them. There are many moments throughout the show that seem to hinge on one decision, and John's decision to become a hunter and raise his kids as hunters too is one of them. Another is Dean's choice to die in the last episode. Cass's choice to partner with Crowley and suck all of Purgatory's souls into himself in season 6. Sam's choice to settle down with Amelia in season 8. But it all comes back to the very first decision. Sam deciding to go with Dean to find John. We know that the demons Azazel and Brady were just waiting for the opportunity to kill Jess when Sam was at his most oblivious and unguarded, which they took after Dean re-entered his life. The repercussions of this reverberate throughout the entire show, most obviously in Sam choosing not to settle down with a woman for the first seven seasons. But Jessica's death is the impetus Sam needs to start hunting again, just like Mary's death was the impetus John had for starting to hunt in the first place. But actually, with the last episode of the series in mind, another choice is made clear. Dean's choice to go to Sam. If the first season would have you believe, Sam Winchester is the protagonist of the series, and Dean is his second in command. He's one of five main characters throughout season one, including Dean, John, Mary, and Azazel the Demon. Azazel begins the narrative by invading Sam's childhood bedroom and killing Mary, but after the ordinary world of their lives, before we hit the call to adventure, Sam is shown as an ordinary guy who just wants to make something of himself. He admits to Dean in some truly spectacular exposition that he swore he was done hunting for good, and that he's put the life behind him to live safely with his girlfriend and college friends. Of course, being supernatural, it doesn't turn out like that. If you take the last few seasons as gospel, it's clear that Dean is the emotional heart of the series and Sam exists as his narrative foil. Somewhere along the way, their roles got reversed. It's Sam's emotional journey we follow throughout the first season. It takes us until episode 4, Phantom Traveller, to find something that Dean is afraid of. As the season wears on, it becomes increasingly clear that all he wants is to have his family back together, Sam and Dad all under one car or motel roof again. Sam, in the Winchester tradition, wants to find Jess's killer, suspecting that the thing that killed Mary is the same thing that killed Jess. This obsession drives him throughout the first two seasons. Sam's motivation in the pilot is laid out clearly. He has to make it back to Stanford on time for his interview for law school. While it's normal for regular people, it's about as far from the Winchester normal as can be, and that's what Sam likes about it. 
it's normal. It's Wonder Bread. It's safe. It's freshly baked cookies and a tab at the only bar on campus. It's your girlfriend in a maid outfit on Halloween, which you still don't celebrate because it reminds you of what you gave up to be there. It's getting a 174 on the LSAT, but not telling your family because you don't talk to them anymore and you haven't for years. It's fine. And then it all comes crashing down and Sam's motivation changes. He's the hero accepting his journey while grieving the loss of the most significant person in his life, since he ditched his family at 18 to live in the world instead of saving it from the sidelines. He's the one our story hinges on, and it's his reactions we live and die by. When Mary dies, we hardly know her. We don't know John either, so it's hard to gauge how broken up we should be by her death. While I wouldn't say we know Jess necessarily, we do know Sam, so when he grieves, we grieve. The framework through which we view all of these events is Sam's perspective, even if we do see Dean without Sam. I'm pointing this out because it's important to know who we sympathise with most, and whose story and narrative is trying to tell. What exactly the narrative is saying is completely dependent on who is saying it. One of Dean's defining traits is that he's great at getting laid. In the original pitch, Dean was supposed to be covered in tattoos and smoking like a James Dean type. Never mind that James Dean was queer as is Dean from On the Road, the character the eldest Winchester is named after. Dean chases Taylor like he's a dog chasing bumpers, and he's attractive and charismatic, so it works out well for him. He doesn't take it hard when a woman rejects him, which is something that a lot of men need to learn. Sarah Gamble, staff writer, executive producer, and showrunner of season six and seven said about Dean, Dean always has a great comeback line, so it's always fun to write him. Dean's introduction to us in the pilot was him hitting on his brother's girlfriend, specifically pointing out her boobs. But this is not all Dean is. He's first and foremost Sam's protector. In Dean's second scene of the pilot, he is shown to rescue Sam from their house as it burns down, carrying him out of harm's way. Dean, as the older brother, knows it's his job to protect his younger sibling. It's been drilled into him since he was four years old that he is supposed to protect Sam above everything, even when Sam ditched their family. Before the pilot, Dean and Sam hadn't spoken in two years, and Sam hadn't seen John in four. But by the end of the episode, we realise Dean hasn't given up the mantle of protector. He rescues Sam from the building where Jess is being burned alive. First and foremost, Dean will always protect Sam. At 26, Dean has seen and done things that no one should see or do. Where Sam is sullen, Dean is loud and brash, getting into trouble, jumping headfirst into situations he shouldn't be in. The situations he shouldn't be in include a crime scene, a river, a motel room, and a haunted shack. Places he should be include the police station, because Dean Winchester is many things, and one of them is a felon. We can't find ourselves sympathising too much with Dean as a main character just yet, because we don't have any attachment to his weaknesses. Yes, Mary died, but she is such a non-character it doesn't register. Unless, of course, you've been through a similar tragedy, then sympathise away. Yes, he loves his car and his guns and his leather jacket, but we find out later they are hand-me-downs from John. Dean's personality is a carefully curated list of acceptable likes and dislikes, inherited from the abusive, alcoholic father John is to him and the woman, wife, and mother he thinks of Mary as. In the pilot, Dean is the lovable scamp, but his desperation is lying in wait beneath the mask of finding his father. He wants his family back, but more than that, he wants his family safe. We see Sam and Dean's strengths play out throughout the episode. In their first encounter with the woman in white, she possesses the Impala and drives it towards them. They both jump off the bridge, but while Sam clings on, Dean hurls himself into the river. 
Thus, the death-defying stunt ends up a funny gag as Dean drags himself out of the muck. Sam is positioned as the smarter brother. I mean, he got into Stanford, right? So he must be smarter, right? Another moment establishes the bulk of their characters in two lines. Sam says, what I said earlier about mum and dad, I'm sorry. And Dean replies, no chick flick moments. Within this simple exchange lies the heart of their differences. Sam wants Dean to be okay. Dean would rather push Sam away than offer up his feelings like a charcuterie platter for anyone to pick apart. From what we know of John, he is a man obsessed. Sam reveals that their whole lives have been based around trying to find the thing that killed Mary. John trained his sons to be hunters from an indeterminably young age after finding out about the supernatural from various side characters and piecing the rest together himself. From how the other hunters talk about John, he is a master in skill and execution, and Dean and Sam take after him. Sam is smart enough and coordinated enough to be good at everything, and Dean is naturally gifted in intellect, tactical skill, and weapons. Together, they make a formidable team. By the time the show really gets going, John, Sam, and Dean are legends in the hunting community. Dean comments in a later episode that he's famous, and other characters point out the same thing. Characters introduced later know who they are before the boys know who the other characters are and what their connection to John is. The implications of John raising his sons as hunters are multitudinal. Because Sam and Dean have been raised this way, they have saved a lot of people that otherwise would have died. But it's at their own expense. They can never live normal lives, and even when they settle down in season 8 at the Men of Letters bunker, the echoes of their loneliness and isolation are still present. That's why it's not enough to focus only on Sam and Dean, or introduce more characters just to kill them off, because the brothers are fundamentally lonely and isolated. And the point of any story is to have your characters progress. So when they start out a certain way, they need to have outgrown that stasis they were trapped in by the end of the series. Sam deserved to build a life for himself in the hunting world, with another hunter and or the Queen of Hell, making connections in a home for other hunters to stay in, and, as one Tumblr user says, a monster rehabilitation centre. Dean deserved to outgrow his trauma and simply grow as a character instead of being stuck as a depressed alcoholic with anger issues. On the surface of the show, Dean is supposed to be Han Solo and Sam Luke Skywalker. But the first thing we learn about Sam to do with his family is that he left them as soon as he finished high school and had a chance to escape. Dean, however, stayed loyal to John and continued hunting. This dynamic of Sam rebelling against the god figure of their father and Dean's dependency on their father's approval continues into the fifth season and parallels the storyline of the angel Lucifer rebelling and his brother Michael staying loyal to God. It certainly is an interesting dynamic, which I'm just realizing as I type this paragraph was repeated in my own family. Me, the youngest, rebelling against my abusive father around the time I started watching this show, while my older brother continued to live with him in squalor and destitution. There were no gardens of Eden in our family either, only a hell of our father's making. My dad loves muscle cars and heavy metal too, and I haven't spoken to him in three years. The motel room they find John occupying before he takes off is something you'd see in a serial killer's lair. There are articles printed out and stuck to the walls, a line of salt encircling the room, various talismans and charms and information on the woman in white. From what we see, John lives up to his legendary status, putting together a pattern of strange deaths and disappearances over the course of 20 years for his sons to eventually solve. But we know by now that he puts hunting above his own children, and it becomes clear as the episode goes on that he is sending them out on hunts he himself can't or won't finish. 
He disappears and leads them on a proverbial and literal ghost hunt as they chase him across the country. The universe of Supernatural started with monsters, but encompasses a lot more than that. Kripke's vision, which I personally think he executed really well, small town Americana means monster of the week. It's ghosts on highways, cannibals in forests, and spirits in lakes. It's a possessed car in a bridge aiming straight for our protagonist. It's gas station junk food and driving 16 hours across multiple states on a hunch. It's sleeping in your car and brushing your teeth at the side of the road because you couldn't afford a hotel room for the night. It's grit meets slime. It's real and fantastical at the same time. When I say this show activates the part of my mind that lives for road trips across a barren country through miles and miles of desert, that's true. I used to love road trips as a kid, just staring out the window with my Game Boy in hand and Alanis Morissette's jagged little pill album in my Discman. I longed for those days. The lore is one of the most interesting things about the show. In most episodes, the characters are seen to flick through physical books to gather information about what they're fighting, which seems to take hours, if not days. At one point, I'm pretty sure their father figure Bobby like digitizes his library, but then that's never brought up again, so maybe I imagined it. There are hundreds of different creatures throughout the seasons, including some the show made up, Jefferson Starships in season 6, others they've taken from folklore and legends and put their own spin on. The interesting ways they present creatures, some pure evil, others sympathetic, is one of the reasons I loved this show from the beginning. All I ever wanted was to write urban fantasy, and this show presents it in an accessible way. I grew up in small towns with populations of less than a thousand people, so watching the characters go through small towns, back roads, truck stops, and service stations in the middle of nowhere just hit me right where it hurts. The lore of the woman in white is thus. A husband cheats on his wife, and the wife, in a moment of insanity, murders her children. When she comes back as a vengeful spirit, she finds men who have been unfaithful and murders them. The character of Constance hitchhikes along the road, waiting for men to pick her up, and even if they haven't been unfaithful, she seduces them before she kills them. Spirits are shown to have special powers. They can move objects, wield weapons, and kill with their hands or minds. They can also appear and disappear at will, making them hard to fight. As with all episodes of TV shows, the problem they face is something out of the ordinary. The woman in white is a ghost, something they've hunted before with ease. Side note, this show can be summed up as Prue from Ride or Die podcast says as the Winchester school of boys who fight ghosts real good. While a normal ghost would be taken out by salting and burning their bones, laying Constance Welch to rest isn't that easy. Before they can find her bones to burn, she appears in the Impala while Sam is driving. But Sam figures out a plan. Drive the Impala through the house she can't go home to, where her children are lying in wait to drag her into the underworld. And the monsters only get more interesting from there. Now that the show has finished, it's interesting to examine what it could have been. We know what it is. A 15-year-long experiment in family dysfunction and queerbaiting. We know it's about choices and free will. But what could it have been? It could have been about more than family dysfunction. Throughout the entire show, the premise has always been about two brothers, and that's to its detriment, as there's only so many times they can rehash the premise of brothers betraying each other. The showrunners were so bent on keeping the show about Sam and Dean that they neglected the other storylines that could have proved more interesting and killed off all the characters that were a threat to their dynamic. It could have been about characters becoming their own creators and stepping outside the narrative, usurping their writers and choosing love instead of violence, 
could have stayed about found families instead of focusing solely on Sam and Dean in the last episode, which undid all of the groundwork they'd laid out in the last seven or so seasons. But what we have is what we get. And while the show falls down in some respects, especially with regards to its treatment of people of colour and the queer community, it is still a show that I've loved since the Howard administration and something that has changed and improved my life in numerous ways. If I hadn't started writing supernatural fanfiction, I wouldn't have majored in writing and I wouldn't have the experience to write four books and some novel-length fanfiction. Supernatural has inspired me so much over the years and I will always consider it kismet that it entered my life. I know others feel the same and you only have to step into the fandom for a day to realise the impact that Supernatural has on people all over the world. A few shows have had both the goal and opportunity to shape television in the way that Supernatural has and to do the things that it has done. Falling in love with it again at a time when I was outgrowing a previous hyperfixation, feeling lost in a drift and burnt out from writing 150,000 words in the middle of a pandemic has been extremely serendipitous and I can't wait to dissect every single thing about this show. You can find the show at Holy Hell Pod on Instagram and Tumblr and patreon.com slash holyhellpod. I'll talk to you soon.